0: I will say that if Garrett Headland ever offered like told me that he wanted me to drive him across the United States while he sat in the front seat with his feet up and read Proust I would probably do it I would I yeah. would find a car and drive him across the United States
1: Yeah I would too I mean I'd steal one Thanks for coming in, we're here to dig books and histories and movies, stories, all stories, stories for good, stories to say we're here, right here and now, stories all as Didion says, we tell them to live, we throw ourselves at these stories and read and watch and hear These stories are so jubilant you could swear the world is good. It's time, time to move into the Projectionist's Lending Library. Join us, won't you? Hey, y'all, this is the Projectionist Lending Library. Thank you for joining us again. Or if this is your first time, thanks for stepping in. I am Eric Klein, and my co-host here is Nathaniel Booth. And we are here today to talk about Jack Kerouac's seminal novel of 1957, On the Road, and the 2012 film adaptation of it. Before we started this episode, Nathaniel, you had or before we even started prepping for it, I guess you had mentioned that you had only read this once and you had hated it. I was curious why, and I was curious what your experience was reading it the second time.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I had only read On the Road about a decade ago for a uh, graduate school class. And when we were talking, I remembered myself as really hating it. In fact, I remember saying in class the words, this book brings out my inner Ward Cleaver. And I remember saying that I just wanted to tell these dirty hippies to take a bath and get a job.
1: I remember saying that very clearly. (laughs) So what was your revisitation of the book like?
0: I started rereading it and I was, I won't say entranced, but I was intrigued. I liked the language. I was able to appreciate the language a little bit more this time. I like Sal's sort of questing attitude. Uh, I did like part five. I had an issue when I got through part one and got into part two and and Dean started actually being a central figure. And we talked about this a little bit before recording. Dean makes me nervous. Dean's very anxiety inducing. And the more Dean there is in this book, the harder it was for me to read it. So eventually I had to just find an audiobook and like listen to large chunks of it because. I could not bring myself to sit down and read Dean. Looking back retrospectively on my first reading, one thing that I've kind of come to the conclusion is that what I hated in the book wasn't Kerouac. And what what I hated in the book was not its sort of loose, discursive, episodic structure. I really think that what bugged me when I read this book the first time was entirely Dean. I think Dean Moriarty is... Uh, I don't want to say he's a problematic figure. He's an anxiety-inducing figure. He makes me nervous. And I don't like that experience. I don't like that feeling of being constantly on edge while I'm reading the book.
1: Well, he is, to be fair, also problematic as Fuck, um, that, that he is. Yeah, but you, but I take your point. Like he is super anxiety inducing, and I think that he's depicted that way on purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most often quoted lines of the book. But then they danced down the streets like dingle doties, and they stumbled after us as I've been doing all my life, after people who interest me, because the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. And that's why Dean is the hero of this novel, of course, is because he is mad, I think. I think it's worth saying to, just as a disclaimer, when we're talking about madness or insanity in this book, we are emphatically not doing so through a clinical lens. Kerouac positions madness or insanity in, in his fiction's discourse or certainly in On the Road in a Foucauldian sense in a way that it is... Strictly just kind of positioned against the status quo. And that's why it makes it desirable. Yeah.
0: There's a tradition of, in Western literature in general, well, world literature in general, because I'm thinking about Dostoevsky as well, who Kerouac was, you know, <laughs> Kerouac was a Dostoevskian, which is
1: left out of the movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They really emphasize the horning Proust in there. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I wrote down the words Proust sighting every single time that book showed up. (laughs) Yes. Because it kept showing up. And I was like, hmm, clearly they think this is significant in some way. But to get what I was saying, there's a tradition in sort of world literature, really, of the idea of the holy fool. It's Mm -hmm. someone who is mad, but maybe only mad north-northwest. It's someone whose attitudes towards life make them someone that society spits on and rejects. But it's these people, it's precisely these people who have a better access to reality than squares,
1: Uh, because they're
0: open to the universe.
1: And Sal specifically describes Dean in such terms. On page 194, that's what Dean was, the holy goof, with both words holy and goof in all caps. Besides the anxiety-inducing nature of Dean Moriarty, what else did you think about your revisitation?
0: The writing is beautiful. I really like Kerouac's prose style. Two other things that did occur to me, and then I want to ask you about your experience with with this book. One is how very traditional this book actually is in terms of its Themes, it's methodology, because we talk about it being a very loosely structured book, and it is. We talk about spontaneous prose, or we will talk about spontaneous prose. But this book is at a very basic level of buildings, Roman. It starts yes. with Sal in a position of youthfulness, and it takes into a position of experience and incorporation into his society, which is something that I think the mythology of On the Road kind of ignores. We think about living on the road, living outside the bounds of quote-unquote normal society. But it really does end with Sal being much closer to being a square
1: than he was at the beginning of the book. I think you're right. But along with being a building's Roman, which Mm I 100% agree, indeed Kerouac's entire Dulio's legend is a long building's Roman. But not only is it a building's Roman, It's a hero's tale, and it's a hero's tale specifically round up in American mythology.
0: One other thing that I'll say while I was reading this, I could not help but notice Kerouac is obsessed with movies. Kerouac talks about movies a lot. He com- mm-hmm. he talks about going to see a Sydney Green Street movie. Yep. He compares himself and other people to characters from movies. Uh, I think one of the first times he meets Dean, he compares him to Gene Autry. Yeah, my first impression of Dean was of a young Gene Autry trim, thin-hipped, blue-eyed, with a real Oklahoma accent, a sideburned hero of the snowy West. And so movies come up over and over and over. I also thought of Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood, with the protagonist who has a car. And he's like, if you've got a car, you don't need Jesus. And the car becomes a sort of symbol of spiritual Failure of Enlightenment for O'Connor. Well, they're
1: both authors that are Catholic, that are obsessed with the other, that are obsessed Mm -hmm. with suffering and redemption. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's something there's a lot of sort of threads, I think, that you could tug and pull and trace uh, from on the road to uh, American writing of mid-century <clears throat> Certainly, mm-hmm. it doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's not happening. It's not whatever the sort of story of the scroll is, it's not a burst of of inspiration unconnected to the world around it, right? Other writers like O'Connor and Vidal are either responding to or they're picking up on the same themes. They're all living in the same sort of environment, and they're all connected to each other. So what about your journey with this book? Much
1: to the chagrin of many friends and colleagues and academics, I really like Kerouac, and mm-hmm. I recognize that he is not a good person. Nonetheless, there's the, the like just the rhythm of his writing. I just I find his writing pretty. There's also something that I really like in. Kerouac, especially positioned against a lot of postmodernism, which, you know, he is a postmodernist. If we're thinking of chronological periods, he's a postmodernist. If we're thinking of aesthetics or like purpose, he's probably not. But that he is contemporaneous with it, nonetheless, I really admire his earnestness. I really like, and, and this is probably mostly just a reflection of me. I really like that he wrestles with his own cynicism, with the way that he sincerely finds beauty and meaning in the world. Even if they're just Fleeting, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's what happens in On the Road. That's what happens in Dharma Bombs, Desolation Angels. So many of his novels, there's he never finds exactly what it is he's looking for, whatever it is meaning or God or whatever. Mm -hmm. But he always finds glimpses of it. And he writes about them, I think, in a legitimately hopeful Way. So that's what I admire about Kerouac generally. On the road, what do I admire about it besides just its style? Because I don't like Dean. I don't even like Sal very much. The book does drag. But I guess what I was just saying is there are just little moments in the book that like, whether it's a couple pages or just a paragraph where it's like, oh my God. And as I had mentioned to you, this was the first time in quite a while I read this from cover to cover. And so I think definitely the feeling of it dragging stood out to me more. But yeah, I don't even think on the road is in my top three of Kerouac novels and Kerouac agreed with that. And I think a lot of Kerouac scholars agree with that. It's one of those things where this is what he's best known for, but it's nowhere near like his best work. Unlike I would argue anyways, Gatsby or Mm. Fitzgerald, but with Gatsby, you know, right. He's best known for Gatsby, and I would love to entertain an argument that Gatsby isn't his best work, but I doubt I would be convinced. On the Road is nowhere near Kerouac's best writing or best novel. In fact, one of the reasons that it's not as good as some of the others, especially Dharma Bombs or Big Sur, is just how rambly it is. Those books are much tighter. They don't drag the way On the Road does. I, I don't think it's his best work, and I don't even necessarily know that it's representative of most of his work.
0: Which is funny because in the popular consciousness... It is right in the popular consciousness. If you're going to talk about Kerouac, people are going to think about On the Road, right. and specifically, I think they're going to think about the style, and they're going to think about the ramblingness, and the you know, there's the whole story about him writing the thing in what three weeks on mm-hmm. bennies and cigarettes, and just on a pounding a large the whole scroll out, on a large scroll, and. This idea is so tied in, I think, with this mythology of Kerouac that we don't think of him often as a craftsman. Kind of like kind of like Ginsburg, to be honest. People don't think about Ginsburg as a craftsman, I think. They think about Ginsburg as just someone who got up and just started talking. Uh, Whitman, mm-hmm. they do the same thing, right? And so mm-hmm. Whitman, Ginsburg, and Kerouac, they're all part of the same sort of ecstatic tradition in
1: American letters. People... Love the high modernists for their stream of consciousness, right? Yeah, like Ooh Faulkner and Joyce and Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot and all these folks that craft thinking out loud but heaven forbid someone actually do that you know like that's like a lot of people like with students particularly the way they talk about stream of consciousness i'm like no that's either automatic writing or spontaneous prose like stream of consciousness is a very crafted purposeful composition of literature which to be clear to that sort of myth, which Kerouac certainly propagated of oh, yeah. the scroll and everything on the road, the novel that we have is pretty edited. I mean, yeah. and, and and now I think it came out in 2007, on the 50th anniversary of the publication of On the Road, but uh, Penguin published the original scroll. A lot of it's pretty similar. The The sort of structure of it's similar. The names are different. In the original scroll, he uses all of the original names. Yeah, so like the names of the real people. Right. That he's talking so, about. yeah. at the end, I think of Neil Cassidy, not I think of Dean Moriarty. I thought right now, Nathaniel, we could just kind of do a quick overview, summary, description of the novel. I was thinking
0: just a minute ago, this novel has the same problem, but for the opposite reasons as Myra, which we mm-hmm. did last episode. I was last thinking episode, about that too. it's hard to. It's hard to summarize Myra because not a lot happens in Myra. On the road, it's hard to summarize because a lot happens over and over and over.
1: (laughs) Exactly. A lot happens, but it's all the same shit. It's like, all the same. There's shit. Very, yeah. like there are different things, like when he's out at like the ship or whatever or on the bed of the truck, and they're paying off the end. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, there's a couple things in the book are when Sal Paradise is not with Dean Moriarty. Yes, obviously, most of the book is him with Dean Moriarty, and that goes to what you're saying. It's just a lot of stuff happens, but it's mm-hmm. all the same. Yeah, and it gets kind of redundant. I think it, it does. It
0: does. Basically, we've got four parts and a part five that functions more as an epilogue. Yeah, and each of these four parts is a distinct journey. So, again, if we want to, if we want to fit this into sort of thematic or literary genres, you're looking at a travel narrative like Marco Polo or like Columbus, which might be more of a uh, a more telling comparison. Hmm? Were those in five parts? I don't know that they were in five parts, but I do know that Columbus had several distinct journeys and each of the journey is chronicled. What is that reminiscent of? I feel like this is a leading question I should have the right answer to. It's like a Shakespearean
1: Shakespearean drama. Yeah. Yeah. Both Shakespeare's tragedies Mm -hmm. were in five Mm -hmm. acts Mm -hmm. as well as where it was his comedies yeah or his histories all of them right i do think that he was specifically playing with the sort of five episode thing Mm -hmm. in relation to tragedy and comedy and that Mm -hmm. the book is both so, yeah, like a lot happens, but when we say a lot happens with Dean, how would you describe that, Nathaniel? They drive around, get fucked up, have sex they with drive people, around. and leave. Yeah,
0: Dean gets on people's nerves. Yep. Sometimes it's played for comedy, like the salesman and the couple in the car mm-hmm. where Dean's driving and he's playing chicken on the highway. Sometimes it's played for also comedy, but slightly different kind in, in like Old Bull Lee's response to Dean, where Old Bull basically says at the very beginning that Dean's a
1: rat. He's trying to let Sal know. but I want to find but, the quote. He seems to me to be headed for his ideal fate, which is compulsive psychosis dashed with a jigger of psychopathic irresponsibility and violence. Mm -hmm. And before we look forward too much um, talking about the movie, Viggo Mortensen's delivery of that quote is fantastic. So perfect. If... Much of the book is just kind of episodic traveling around, and each part represents a different journey or quest. What are the things that tie it together, and what did you see as a kind of overarching narrative? There's the religious
0: quest, obviously, which is
1: something that
0: you know far more about in Kerouac's writing than I do. But this sort of search for a kind of Zen enlightenment on the American roadways. And that's part of where the sincerity comes through. And I think that, I think that that sincere religiosity is, is one of the things that makes Kerouac difficult for a lot of readers because he's not playing it for, it's not conventional religiosity. At least in this book, but it's also not ironic
1: religiosity. It's not <laughs> like, ironic. He is
0: not ironic.
1: No, at all. Right. And so especially that. when you think of—I mean, I guess Vonnegut's the next decade. But I was thinking of like *Cat's Cradle* or you know, like different things written in that post-war period that were super mm-hmm. ironic and caricature-like of religion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, even Burroughs at, is.
0: Yeah. And you look at, uh, since you mentioned Vonnegut, you look at Breakfast of Champions, which is, among other things, and this is something that's a through line in all the Vonnegut I've read, it's a, an attempt to puncture American mythology. Mm-hmm. It's it's an attempt to bring or to cut America down to size, which arguably in the years Following World War II, especially, was something that was very needful because America had kind of emerged as a as a global superpower at that point and was very high on its own supply. Although Kerouac is not, at least in On the Road, he's not the kind of booster for Americanism that you find in a lot of Cold Warriors of the time, and that he. And the, becomes at the end of his and, life. Yeah, he's not that, but he is absolutely not ironic about America. He likes the people. Like he's going down the road, he's getting picked up by these husky blonde farm boys and driving along and and meeting hobos and derelicts of various kinds and he likes them. He finds them to be Again, in a sort of Whitmanian sense, he finds them to be indicative of the best in humanity. He isn't interested in on the road in puncturing pretensions. He is very interested in this idea that, yes, there is a real bedrock America that is good and that can be discovered through encountering its people. That might be one of the reasons why he he's an uncomfortable read for a lot of people. Because, for instance, I was reading him being picked up by these blonde farm boys and bouncing along in the back of the truck and thinking, you know what? They're both probably really, really hella racist. I was just reading it. I was like, I was thinking, look at all these people that probably wouldn't cross the street to help someone who is a different skin color from them.
1: No, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And we'll talk about the problematic nature of both race and gender in this. But mm -hmm. you're right. Even when it's not explicit, so much of what you read in the book that's folded into it, who could hitchhike and just drive wherever the fuck they wanted in 1948 united states all of that's tied up in the book i i think it's worth saying that by the end of the book sal paradise is thoroughly disillusioned with mm-hmm. dean moriarty
2: The 1950s, the nation recognized in its midst a social movement called the uh, Beat Generation. A novel titled *On the Road* became a bestseller, and its author, Jack Kerouac, became a celebrity. Partly because he'd written a powerful and successful book, but partly because he uh, seemed to be the embodiment of this new generation. Jack and I made a, uh, an album together a few months back in which I played uh, background piano for his poetry reading. And at that time, I made a note to book him on the show because I thought you would enjoy meeting him. So here he is, Jack Kerouac.
1: <laughs> Kerouac was a very purposefully autobiographical writer. His novels, including On the Road, are Romane Clay. They are all based on real people. It's thinly veiled as fiction where he may sometimes combine a couple things or invent some dialogue, but mostly this is his experience. In Mm -hmm. fact, when, I mean, he has a ton of biographies written about him, right? So much of them are just based on his writings. But when we're talking about On the Road, so when we say Sal Paradise, that is the novel's character of Jack Kerouac. And it's a first person narrative. And so he's narrating the whole thing. And he's Jack Kerouac. Dean Moriarty, the so-called hero of the book is Neil Cassidy, who was a real person, a little bit younger than Kerouac, as they talk about in the novel. And later on, he kind of became a bridge from beat dumb to hippie He famously drove Ken Kesey's bus in The Merry Pranksters, right? Old Bull Lee is William S. Burroughs. Carlo Marx is Allen Ginsberg. We could go on and on, but when we're talking about these characters they do reference real people and i think when we reference kerouac we're talking specifically about the writing of the book yes yes so i just wanted to as we kind of finished up the summary i just wanted listeners to know that that they weren't confused like wait i thought you said sal now you're saying kerouac type of
0: yeah yeah yeah, because when I when I, 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 like,
1: I will I will admit that I do slip and will sometimes refer to them interchangeably. I try not I, to, but it, it still happens.
0: Yeah, I, I'm trying very hard right now to to when I'm when I'm talking about the book narrator, I mean Sal. I say Sal when I'm talking about the process of creation. I I'll talk about Kerouac.
1: Right, right, right. Because,
0: because, like, yeah, these books are autobiographical, but I don't think we should lose sight of the... And you would know more about the autobiographical elements than I would because uh, you've done a lot of work with Kerouac. But I don't think we should lose sight of the constructed nature of these texts.
1: Right. I, they're, and I, they're, I I do think it's important to focus on that construction. In my writing, I argue that Kerouac is in a project that I call auto-mythology. It's not autobiography. He's writing about himself and his friends, but he's making myths about all of them. And he's negotiating more conventional American myths, like, hey, go west, those kinds of myths. He's negotiating that with the post-war present where that mythology doesn't make sense he gets to san francisco and he says i'm at the end of america there's nowhere to go but back when we talk about kerouac we are focusing on that construction not not
0: to get too far off topic but since you talk about auto mythology was that a project that a lot of the beats were involved in i think about ginsburg for instance Mm -hmm. ginsburg is Burroughs. Very much like Burroughs. They're constructing mm-hmm. themselves in a
1: certain sort of way. And I think that is one of the reasons that made them so sensational in their time.
0: Yeah, but as we as we talked about when we discussed Truman Capote and Gore Vidal, that's kind of the condition of post-World War II literature, right? Mm-hmm. Every every writer, even writers like Thomas Pinchon, who's famously averse to publicity, every single writer is creating a persona and then exploiting that persona. Right. Very often on television, which if you look on YouTube, you can find videos of Kerouac reading segments from, I think it's from Visions of Cody, but he says it's from On the Road, uh, to an accompaniment of jazz. the the Steve Allen Allen show. Steve Allen. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Uh, no, that actually is mostly from On the Road, but it okay. also pulls okay. from the uh, original scroll. Um, so,
0: it's it's a persona, though, right? They're creating, mm-hmm. as you say, they're creating a mythology, but that's kind of after World War II, and especially with the advent of television, that's kind of what authors did. Right. They created personas, and it doesn't matter if they're the beats who get lambasted for this or if they're Gore Vidal or if they're Truman Capote Norman Mailer, Norman Mailer, yeah, Norman Mailer. <laughs> oh is, my God! Look, we can say what we would like about the performativity of Ginsburg or Kerouac. Neither of them is as performative as Mailer who is like going on talk shows and punching people and yelling. And he he's just a, uh, Again. To be fair, Mailer's also fallen into a little bit of disrepute in recent oh, for years, sure, too, for, for similar sure. reasons.
1: For but. sure, for sure. The only thing I was going to say about Mailer and his performativity and how self-aware he was of it is you know, the collected works of his autobiographical writings called Advertisements for Myself. I don't know if you remember talking about this when we recorded uh, Gore Vidal, and I said it wasn't autobiographical. Mm -hmm. This is what I meant by that. Like I was fully aware that The book reflected Gore Vidal. Like in that way, you can read it autobiographically, but like, whereas, like, on the road, this is autobiographical. This is about his life. As you said, it's fallen into a kind of critical disrepute. Kerouac, generally, I think, and on the road, particularly, though, despite its popularity when it was published, it a lot of the same critiques leveled at today were leveled at it then. What are Mm -hmm. some of the critiques that even without having read a lot of criticism or reviews or anything that you're just kind of aware of, of being in the discourse of American literary studies? Like, What are the critiques of Kerouac and or... On the road. I can think of two right
0: off the top of my head, one of which we've already touched on, and that's the question of race. There is a discussion about whether or not or, or, or how Kerouac addresses questions of race. Rachel Ligari in this essay When Mexico Looks Like Mexico, the hyper-realization of race in the pursuit of the authentic, she kind of touches on that. The way that race becomes for Kerouac and maybe for the Beats more broadly, race becomes a collection of things that they can adopt without actually having to deal with the material historical struggles of the people. Who, And so the critique would be that Kerouac, others, people of different races, right? And then adopts signifiers from them in order to establish his own difference from his background as a as mm-hmm. a white man. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes ultimately his discourse of race is ultimately about his own anxieties as a white man in yep. post-World War II America. So that's one line of critique. The other line of critique is gender. The these men. In this book, live off of women. In the in the novel, Sal is constantly writing back to his aunt for fifty dollars. In the in real life, it was his mother,
1: um, which I don't know if that makes it better or worse, to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> what we're talking about are the sort of common, well-known critiques that often antecede reading Jack Kerouac or yeah. on the road anymore. And I think as you have pointed out very well, they're there. Like those critiques are totally valid.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and this may be, may be a way we can start transitioning to some of the more positive themes, because one of the things about the, or, or maybe not, one of the things about the treatment of women here is again, We've got to insist this is a problem in Kerouac, but it's not a problem unique to Kerouac. Women represent domestication. They represent the domestic home from which Sal escapes, and they also represent the domestic home in which he finds himself at the end of the novel. One of the things that happens in this book that is, I think, problematizes some of the discourse about gender here is that everyone, almost everyone, winds up being domesticated to some extent. Even Dean, who isn't quite wholly domesticated at the end, he's much more domesticated at the end of the novel than at the beginning of the novel.
1: I think domestication is one of the things that Sal Paradise struggles with throughout the novel Mm -hmm. and is kind of terrified of. Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why he continues to go back to his aunt, which is the same reason Kerouac continued to go back to his mother. Mm -hmm. But I think there is this real way in which he's terrified to be domesticated by a partner. So he reverts to being a child of his mother's.
0: Mm Maybe this is this is related to this. This is in part five, when he's out in the street and he calls up and a pretty girl sticks her head out of the window. Mm-hmm. The pretty girl stuck her head out of the window and said, yes, who is it? Sal Paradise, I said, and heard my name resound in the sad and empty street. Come on up, she called. I'm making hot chocolate. So I went up and there she was, the girl with the pure and innocent dear eyes that I had always searched for. And for so long, we agreed to love each other madly. There's a sense in which, yeah, domestication is something that Sal fears, but he seems to indicate that it's also something that he desires. Mm-hmm. And maybe this maybe this maternal aspect, because I, I forgot uh, until or didn't think of the significance until this very moment of her making hot chocolate. That's not something… It, maybe we do because we're soft millennials, but that's not something you expect your lover to do for you. That's something you expect your mother or no, your that's, grandmother
1: or your aunt to do for that's you. It's a comforting childlike. Right. Yeah. Sit around the fire, warm up, have some hot chocolate. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's much more nurturing in that way. Exactly. And I think that highlights Kerouac's sort of ambivalence to the two. He wants to be like Neil Cassidy. He wants to be wild and untamable, And because of someone like Neil Cassidy, he associates that with masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. And though he desires love, and from a woman, there's a way that he can't make sense of that desire that it manifests itself in that fear of domesticity. Mm-hmm. When he yeah. goes up to the woman who offers him hot chocolate, he's not going up there to be with an aunt or a mom. Mm-hmm but that act is that, and, and, and you're right. I think that that episode kind of collapsed those two simultaneous desires and anxieties.
2: Jack, I've uh, got a couple of square questions, but I think the answer would be interesting. How long did it take you to write on the road? Three weeks. How many? Three weeks. Three weeks. Jeez, that's amazing. How long were you on the road itself?
1: Seven years.
2: Seven years. I was on the road once for three weeks, and it took me seven years to write about it. the other way around. I've heard that you write so fast that you don't like to use uh, regular typing paper, but instead you prefer to use one big long roll of paper. Is that true?
0: Yeah. When I write narrative novels, and I want to change my narrative
2: thought, I keep going... You don't want to change the pages at the end, you mean?
0: A hundred foot long
2: teletype paper. Oh, teletype rolls. Where do you get them? Huh? Where do you get the paper? Yeah, a teletype paper. I mean, where do you get it? In a very good stationery store. I see. And when I write my symbolistic, serious, impressionistic novels,
0: I write them in pencil.
2: Oh, yeah? <clears throat> I've seen a lot of your poetry written in pencil, but I didn't realize that's how you worked on the prose stuff. For um, narrative, it's good. Yeah. good I got a, a, the most hard question of all, but everybody always puts it to you, I'm sure. I mean, because everybody always puts it to you. How would you define the word beat? <laughs> I don't mean why not, Time. I mean it. Ah, there... oh, sympathetic. Sympathetic? All right. I ask.
1: The book that we do read not only does not have a lot of, actually, I don't know if it has, and does it have any explicit homosexual acts? No homosexual acts, no. There's
0: the encounter with the guy who's driving a car and there's That's,
1: implications with Carlo Marx and Dean Moriarty, which of course, yeah, they did have a sexual relationship in real life. But like, there's never anything explicit. In I honestly had a, I
0: honestly had a hard time reading the Carlo Marx stuff because I was reading it knowing that it was Alan Ginsberg, mm-hmm. and so. Everything he did, everything he said, I was like, oh, yeah, he's he's gay. He's obviously gay. But I don't know how much of that was me porting in what I know about Allen Ginsberg and what I know about uh, what little I know about Neil Cassidy, who was uh, sexually fluid in terms of who he had relationships with his daughter. Mm -hmm. I, I watched an interview with his daughter a while back. And uh, she told a story about a time that she gave a speech to like a gay rights organization about her father. And they asked her about his bisexuality. And she said they made her change the word that she used. And I don't remember what word they wound up having her use. But what she said was oh yeah, of course my dad slept with men and women. He was a con man. And, and they made her change it to something that sounded a little bit less harsh, I guess. <laughs> but...
1: What are the places that you see this sort of um, eroticism
0: Kerouac is working in a very well-established tradition of homoerotic pairings in American literature that goes all the way back to, uh, you know, Hawkeye and Chingachgook. It's, it's in Moby Dick. It's arguably it's in stuff like the Marble Fawn. Like you find it all over the place. You find it in the and, Great Gatsby.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> to, I think, be fair to Kerouac, I think he knew that. He was one of those writers that's like, I am participating in the grand literary tradition, right? I mean, mm-hmm. very much T.S. Eliot, tradition and individual talent. I'm picking up the traditional things and yes, inflecting my own things into it. So I think you're right. and But I, just to be clear, I don't think that it's uncritical in the way he does it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what totally to say about the sort of homoerotic relationship between Sal and Dean because it's weirdly hard to pin down, I found. Mm -hmm. It's there and and it's there a lot just in the way that Sal describes Dean, Mm -hmm. Western kinsman of the sun, right? Oh, he was born on the road and like, just like the way that he describes Dean often so viscerally. But yeah, there's not a lot of explicit overt depictions of the homoerotic relationship that Sal and Dean have.
0: Yeah, I think that if I could could venture a paradoxical statement, I think that that's precisely what makes it so queer. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before. When I think about queerness, I tend to think about it as a state of ambivalence isn't the word, but a state of being both revealed and unrevealed, known and unknown. Shortly after World War II, at the end of the 40s, uh, Gore Vidal's The City and the Pillar was published, which was one of the first Uh, Novels to treat of openly queer main character in a way that was not exploitative or moralizing, let's say. Okay. And and before that, you had had queer representation and stuff like King's Row by Henry Bellaman, that sort of thing. But primarily, queer writers historically had had to operate in a mode of possible, plausible deniability, where Mm -hmm. you would have a character who was obviously. Gay, everyone knew they were gay, but you couldn't come out and say it. So you hinted at it. This was, of course, how queer people had to exist in public life. You'd wear a red tie or a green carnation. You'd carry a copy of Leaves of Grass around and you'd hope that someone would notice that you were signaling. And so getting this back to on the road, this idea of the relationship between Sal and Dean being something that you know, you can sense there's something queer going on, but it's not explicitly queer. That would be very much just the way that it was written and the way that people would read. Uh, At the time, I think. But it makes it hard to talk about because then you sit down and you say, oh, well, I think Sal and Dean are queer. And someone can come along and say, well, it's not in the text. You're
1: not showing me in the text, so it can't be demonstrated. I mean, I think there's a lot of places to demonstrate it as we kind of just talked about without finding the specific passages right now. One of the problems or complications of it, Mm -hmm. because he also reads Dean very much, sometimes in explicit terms, as his brother. So while he looks at Dean in a sort of desiring gaze and writing about him with language to describe it as such. He's also writing about Nowhere Brothers. Kerouac's older brother famously Died when he was, when Kerouac was very young, which influences a lot of his writing. I think more importantly, and this ties into the very end of the book, that he saw them as brothers because they both did not have a father. Kerouac's father died shortly before he started his quote unquote life on the road, and Dean or Neil Cassidy, sorry, as he says in the book, but also confirmed by biographies. His father is who raised him. He did not have a mother, but his father was a con man in jail a lot. Cassidy was raised in the pool halls. These are all reasons that Kerouac admires Cassidy, right? But The thing that unites them is that feeling of neither of us have a father. And of course, that's a more largely symbolic is obsessed as Kerouac is about the myth of America is we don't have an origin. We don't have a history. We need to make our own or find our own.
0: I was going to ask you to talk a little bit more about Kerouac's own religious background and then we can move into other topics but it it probably would be good to nail down a little bit where he was coming from
1: yeah so born and raised catholic in 1969 the same year that he dies he said he writes somewhere like i am a catholic so from the beginning to the end uh kerouac did consider himself a catholic first and foremost but right around the time he starts writing on the road Is when he actually starts being influenced by Buddhism. He's specifically influenced by the Diamond Sutra and uh, Mahayana Buddhism, if I'm pronouncing Mm -hmm. that correctly, which my understanding is a, a stricter, more organized form as opposed to like zen buddhism in the dharma bums he famously kind of verbally spars with jaffe Ryder, is the character's name he's he's the he's the dean moriarty of the dharma bums the uh, character or the person he's based on is gary snyder who was a beat poet though he insisted he wasn't um but that does like go to japan and becomes a, a buddhist monk, but he was like a Zen Buddhist. And and in Dharma Bums, they kind of go back and forth. But yeah, so he's starting to kind of get into more Eastern thought generally by the time he's writing on the road. And so I think we can see that. We see a lot of Catholic or at least Christian kind of invocations. Certainly, communion is big in the book, though never as explicit as it is lately in Dharma Bums, but the way that people come together to eat, people come together to drink. I think for Kerouac, one of the things that brought Buddhism and Catholicism together was their emphasis on suffering and the redemptive quality of suffering. That's one of the reasons why Kerouac seems so Mm self-lacerating. I mean, to be clear, he dies at 47 years old because he starts throwing up blood and basically his insides disintegrate because of how much he drank. He writes about he knows he's killing himself through drinking. There's a way that Kerouac and in turn his characters in the books inflict suffering on themselves. And I think Mm -hmm. it's tied to those kind of twin religious identities or whatever.
0: Yeah, I think about the old drunk in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Raskolnikov runs into this old guy and he says, you think I drink to make myself happy. In fact, I drink because I'm miserable and I want to make myself more miserable. And he's got a long dialogue about how he he's taken the last money his family has to spend on drink and he knows that he shouldn't do that but that's exactly why he's doing it because he wants to suffer You think about two notes from the underground, right? Which famously begins, I am a sick man. I'm a spiteful man. I think there's something wrong with my liver. And it's all about suffering and doing things to make yourself suffer more. Do you want to, I know you've said you want to talk about the very last paragraph. Do you want to do that before we move on to the movie?
1: I guess I can read the final paragraph of On the Road. So in America, when the sun goes down and I sit in the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the West Coast and all that road going, all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. And in Iowa, I know by now the children must be crying in the lands where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims onto the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all rivers, cups the peaks and folds the final shore in. And nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. I think of Dean Moriarty. I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. I think of Dean Moriarty. What would you like to to say about it? Well, I feel like this final paragraph captures the entirety of the book. It considers the divine... Mm -hmm. Don't you know God is Pooh Bear? Um, It certainly has the homoeroticism, imagining all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge Mm -hmm. over to the West Coast. The father we never found, it has that anxiety. It just captures sort of everything in the book in, in just this kind of beautiful language. What did you think about the um, that single sort of almost parenthetical line? And don't you know God is Pooh Bear?
0: Oh, that, that line puzzled me. It's obviously evoking or drawing from the image of the children immediately before. Children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? So, it's, it's an invocation of childhood. It's also an attempt to comfort, right? Because the, the children are crying. America here is conceived of as a place where children are allowed to cry. And that parenthetical seems to suggest a comfort for the crying children. Uh, Pooh bear being a, a symbol of uh, childhood innocence, certainly of childhood fantasy, also of childhood comfort. So that's People one of the things for, I was going to yeah. say,
1: right? Like, I mean, that also it is this sort of uh, message of comfort to this innocence of children crying. But also, isn't Pooh Bear just a hallucination by a child? hmm He's an imaginary friend. An imaginary friend. How would you describe the character of Pooh? Well, I mean, I'm limited by the fact that I
0: mostly know him from the Disney movies. He's got an insatiable appetite. Uh-huh. He's nice, but he's also self a little bit self centered, single minded. He gets himself stuck in trees and on limbs trying to trying to get honey. He's
1: cuddly. He's very cuddly, and he's very sweet. And he's very sweet. Like but I he's don't... a little
0: bit ineffectual, right? <laughs>
1: Well, Pooh, I love Pooh, but if you were to ask me for some key characteristics of Pooh, it would be, as you said, hungry, just hungry, Respect. Like, t- I have total respect for his hunger, but he just wants to eat all the time. As you said, insatiable. He's very sweet and kind. I don't think that he's self-centered. I think that's one of the things in the whole 100 Acre Wood or whatever it's called is he's the one that's always he's selfless. I I would think unless honey is involved, then he, yeah, might become selfish. But well, he's childlike in that way. He's he's dumb. <laughs> I don't know what other word to use. He's not smart. I mean, it's in an endearing quality. Like you said, it makes him childlike. It makes him so sweet. Yeah, okay. So is God just like an ineffectual, kind person, but doesn't know anything? Is God just a hallucination of a child? Does God just really like honey?
0: (laughs) Well, and this occurs in the same paragraph where he talks about absent fathers, it's an old old tradition in christianity certainly to think of god as as a father but one of the things that we have to come to grips with or at least 20th century people had to come to grips with is the idea that god may be a father but he's kind of an absentee father and And so
1: so we fill in a myth for that like dean does for his father throughout
3: Childhood days A donkey named
2: Eeyore is His friend
3: And Kanga and Little Roo There's rabbit and Piglet and there's Owl but most of all Winnie the Pooh Winnie the Pooh Winnie the Pooh Tubby little Cuddy all stuffed with fluff, he's winning a boo. Winning...
0: So now we're going to move on to the 2012 movie adaptation of On the Road. It's directed by Walter Salas. It stars Sam Riley as Sal Paradise and Garrett Hedlund as Dean Moriarty. It also has Kristen Stewart, Amy Adams, Mm -hmm. and Kristen Dunst, and also Viggo Mortensen. And also Viggo Mortensen. Okay, so in a general sense, I thought it was fine. I didn't hate it when I watched it. I also didn't particularly like it. It felt very a Reader's Digest condensed version of On the Road. There's a couple of things I liked about it. I really liked the first 20 minutes or so, the section before he actually goes on the road. I liked that a lot. To my understanding, that's one of the places where the filmmakers drew as much or more on the real life biographies of the beats and their letters and the scroll, the original scroll version. I liked seeing all all of them hanging around, going out, doing their thing. So I liked that a lot. Once they got on the road, it kind of slacked off for me. I, I found that a lot of the interesting erotic tension that you find in the first 20 minutes dissipates. Even when They're driving down the road and Mary Lou is giving them both a hand job in the front of the car. It felt way less erotic than anything that happened in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Absolutely, everyone in this movie is incredibly sexy, which is not a critical observation, but I wrote it down a couple of times, so I have to say (laughs) it. I I was, in fact, not under the influence of any sort of inebriate at the time, so I think it must be my genuine reaction. (laughs) I found Dean to be less anxiety-producing in Mm -hmm. this role. Garrett Headland plays him in a much more low-key manner than what we see in the book. They make a more open play to psychoanalyzing Dean and trying to get at his traumas and get at his brokenness than i think the book necessarily does
1: they try to make them uh, more sympathetic they try to make they him try to make them line up more with secondhand mythos of dean moriarty one he's of the a, things a I sad was
0: sad little puppy dog
1: right and so one of the things yeah. i wanted to say i both liked him and didn't he did the sort of con man mm-hmm. talking that dean so well he did so well you can see how you could be seduced by him talking to type of thing right. There's a lot of reasons why one would be <laughs> seduced by Garrett Hedlund. But like his <laughs> yeah his performance of Dean Moriarty, what he does not do well of Dean Moriarty is the ecstatic moments. Yep. And this yep. might be where you're coming from when you say he's less anxiety inducing in the movie, because that's one thing I notice where I'm like, I really like him for this version of Dean, but this other version of Dean is totally muted.
0: Well, you see it in one particular thing and that's the way that he says, yes, yes. Yes. Mm. So if you read it in the book, it's this sort of ecstatic, hyper, like almost man. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes, Right? And you picture him screaming it. That's sexual, by the way.
1: Uh, Well, it's Joyce, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I said, yes, I will. Yes, Yes. we should acknowledge that it was just Bloomsday a couple days ago.
0: Yes, it was. Whereas (laughs) if you listen to Dean say it in the movie, it's like, Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's almost sleepy mm-hmm. and it's not this sort of excess of energy. And one wonders why they even keep the repetition in there because it does nothing for the characterization at all. It's just there because people have read the book and they know that Dean says, yes, yes, yes. <laughs>
1: The first time I watched it, I didn't like the sequencing. I mean, in fact, the sequencing does generally follow the sequencing of the book. I guess I should say, I don't like what it includes and what it takes out. And I totally understand that those are decisions you have to make when you adapt a movie. I just, some of the stuff that I find really critical of the book is left out of the movie you said you really enjoyed the opening I did not it's starting out with the driving in the cars and in and, and, oh, that, that part I the flashback I didn't care for
0: the opening the immediate opening I didn't like it's the stuff from when the flashback starts to when it catches back up with where the movie goes.
1: okay okay cool the New okay, York cool. stuff then, I like yep okay so we're in agreement there one of the things I really didn't like in my first viewing but have since negotiated my thoughts a little bit was its use of music. Specifically, I I really just didn't like the way it used music and in general, the way that diegetic and non-diegetic music works. Like, if it's diegetic, which when it is for a lot of times in the movie, it's like if they're in, like, a black jazz club and it's super exoticized and Mm -hmm. just kind of wild bebop music, it's not like that when they're driving. But on rewatching it, what I realized I really didn't like about the music wasn't even the music itself. It was all of the in-between scenes of Cell Paradise narrating. And it has this, Mm -hmm. it has like a weird noir thing to it in those scenes, I thought. So I watched it first and I didn't like it. And hey, I had the self-awareness to know. What's the main reason I didn't like it? It's not how I imagined it. It's not what I wanted the the on-the-road movie to be. So I watched it again. And actually, I I liked it quite a bit more on the second viewing to lead me to the verdict of, like you, it's fine. I liked it more than when I first watched it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's serviceable.
0: What did you find that you liked about it on the second go through
1: I like most of the performances a lot more. I am still ambivalent about Sam Riley, but on the whole, I thought on the revisitation, I'm like, no, this movie does capture the spirit of the book. I think it's a good adaptation. It is quite faithful.
0: Yeah, I I kept notes of... Something would come up, and I'd be like, Oh, this is this scene. Oh, here's the truck scene. Here's the salesman driving the car, Steve Bashimi.
1: The only thing it does do sometimes is, as you mentioned, it, it might pull from letters written or diaries. Yeah. Or I know there are a couple things pulled from Visions of Cody, but you know, those are all a part of the same project.
0: Since we talked about queerness in the book earlier, one of the things that the movie does is it does confirm for the author audience that Dean at least is bisexual. You don't see anything, but it's plain early on that Carlo and Dean have something going on. And then Carlo gets a whole monologue where he talks about his relationship with Dean. And I think he even says, it's the first time I've been with a man sexually. And then later on, the salesman in the car, who in the book, we know that he's gay, but we don't explicitly hear that Dean and he have any sort of an arrangement. But in the movie, it's very explicit that Dean and the salesman uh, have sex on this ride. And Dean even says something about how the salesman gets what he wants and he's afraid of it or something like that right Mm -hmm. at the the end. So you have this sort of conversation going on about Dean's relative sexual freedom versus the confines of Mm -hmm. middle class square society. So the salesman can only have these relationships sort of in passing. And then he's scared of them in a way.
1: How do you think the movie depicts Sal Paradise? versus the book. I think it does a good job in sort of depicting the sidekick and being Mm -hmm. told from the sidekick. The movie somewhat repeated the missteps of the novel. And it doesn't seem like they necessarily repeated them in a way to emphasize, look at how fucked up this is in the novel. It looked like they repeated them in their own way in their 2012 indie art house way, which by the way, this movie, you just watch it and it is like, yes, this is 2012 indie art house yeah. movie. But it feels like it repackages it in a way for its own medium that doesn't actually properly address the the problematic nature of it in the novel. It approaches race and gender in a really troubling way.
0: See, I had not so much when it comes to race, but when it comes to gender, I had a strong feeling that it did the opposite of that. Okay. And and this may just be because we've got Kristen Stewart, who is, you know, Kristen Stewart, and Kristen Dunst, mm-hmm. who To my shame, I've only recently begun to realize is actually really, really, really good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, She's she's pretty amazing. Have you seen Marie Antoinette? Oh, yes. And one of the things that the movie does, and I think we talked about this earlier and you indicated that you see this in the book as well. But I think film being a, a visual medium maybe intensifies it in a certain way. One of the things that this movie really emphasizes is the fact that Dean's lifestyle in particular depends on exploiting the women around him. And I'm thinking particularly of the scene where Sal shows up at Dean's house and they're sitting in his living room talking. And then we get a shot of Kirsten Dunst, pregnant, laying down with the baby screaming. And she has to get up and take care of the baby. At other points, we see her having to do housework and Dean will like show up and say, hey, I'm going to the bar now. And then he'll leave. It feels to me like the movie, however successfully is open to question, it feels to me like the movie is actually very much interested in the way that these women's lives are derailed by. Dean and to a lesser extent, Sal. Now, this can get problematic. At one point, Mary Lou says something like, oh, what I really want is a family. Right. So it lends itself to this idea that all women really want is to have a baby and a house and and domestication and that sort of thing, uh, which is problematic in its own way. But I think that the movie does pay more attention to the lives of the women than the book does.
1: Well, they do make an actual character of Jane Lee, who is old Hmm. Bully's wife, who is just like not even present. I mean, she's present, but like not even discussed at all. Really? That's Amy Adams in the movie. That's Amy Adams. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they do make a character out of her. I was in a play with Amy Adams. Did you know that? Really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs)
0: When When I was taking notes and I saw her, I wrote, Amy Adams, and I knew that I was going to have to mention the play.
1: <laughs> um, Ed Dunkel's wife, who is played by Elizabeth's elizabeth moss in the movie which when she goes off it's just awesome Mm -hmm. like when she goes off on them and she goes off on dean and then she goes off on ed dunkel and then she kind of says fuck you to sal just for being here like it's fantastic i guess where i see that differently is its depiction of mary lou the movie really strips away a lot of the genuine desire that Sal has towards Mary Lou. And it really strips down Mary Lou to way even more of a sexual object in the movie than it is in the book. She is more of a caricature in the movie than I find her in the book. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it you, makes sense. You, I mean you,
1: you don't agree though.
0: No, no, no. I, I was thinking about the the number of times she's giving road roadhead in the movie, the number of times she's giving hand jobs in
1: the movie. Even as I was thinking about this when I was taking these notes on it, like I have this sort of like back and forth commentary or dialogue with myself in a lot of ways. I mean, this goes back to what I was talking to before, is like the movie is just more explicitly sexual, mm-hmm. whereas in the book it's more, you know, innuendo and you kind of read, be- reading between the lines sort of things. Mm-hmm. So those things are present in the book, but they're not explicit. One of the things that I thought is pretty explicit in the book is that Sal Paradise really loves Mary Lou and. Mm-hmm hates that she's with dean i think in the movie it doesn't depict as much how much he loves her it rather only depicts how much he hates that she's with dean because the only way it really depicts that he hates that she's with dean is because of just how explicitly sexual they are throughout the movie. I guess I feel like it like treats Mary Lou and in turn the relationship between Mary Lou and Sal and Dean, like in like pretty one dimensional or reductive.
0: There's a sense in which, and here we can evoke Eve Sedgwick in her book between men, where she talks about the love triangle being an excuse for two men to express their desire for each other through the medium of a woman. There's a sense in which, mary lou just functions as a way for sal to have sex with dean again i keep going back to the the dual hand job but what's curious about this is because you say that the movie's a lot more sexual and it is it's got more explicit sex in it that is to say the movie i think is substantially less erotic than the book the scene where they actually make love uh, where Sal and Mary Luke make love. I wrote, Do people actually find this erotic? It was just so flatly presented and so unsensual in a way that the first 20 minutes are not. The first 20 minutes, where it's all like innuendo and tension and that sort of thing, actually do feel pretty erotic. The scene where Carlo watches Sal read his poem about making love to Dean (laughs) is more sexually charged than the actual sex scenes in this movie.
1: No, you're right. And I I 100% agree, which is... Why I feel like the movie is pretty reductive or one dimensional. Mm-hmm. It strips all of the sort of sensuality and complexity of all these things. And it's just like, oh, here's Mary Lou giving them both hand jobs. Even though I really like Kristen Stewart, as Mary Lou, I'm biased. I really like Kristen Stewart, but it was a way in which, as in the book, I just felt like what a fucking just underutilized character. But they were but she was underutilized in different ways, different ways. Be, between the book and the movie.
0: Okay, so much like On the Road, this movie sags very badly in the middle. Yes, <laughs> like, it does. Yep. It is much it like is, the book. Much like the book. It just mm-hmm. it starts off with the exception of the flashback, like the, the first scene. It starts off very tense, very tightly done. I think the ending is it's fine but that middle part is just so flabby it's not a long movie but it could have been tightened i think
1: well as i said uh, before like that's one of the things that i think dharma bums and big Sur shine i mean mm-hmm. they're both not much more than half the size of on the road like they're just much tighter one of the and, things and that in the I... movie and the movie does sort of reflect that one thing
0: after another rolling your (laughs) eyes like
1: you get bored like i got distracted in the middle of the movie Mm -hmm. both times i watched it yeah like towards the end i'm i'm looking at my phone i was reading some visions of cody i was just doing different things
0: one other thing and this is not apropos of anything but one thing i really liked about this movie is the way that the cars were filmed And the way that driving Mm -hmm. was filmed, because, you know, I watch a lot of movies either set in the 40s or that were actually filmed in the 40s. -hmm. And one thing that it's very rare to see in my experience is a car going fast. They're always pulling up to the curb or pulling away from the curb or it's an inside the car shot. This movie has so many shots. It's just astonishing of these cars, these vintage cars ripping across the landscape, you you can actually feel or sense the speed that Dean drives just mm-hmm. by watching these cars move. It's a simple thing, and I don't know that it means anything, but the attention that this movie pays to speed of movement mm-hmm. is something that I think does really well capture maybe something about Kerouac's prose or something about Kerouac's narrative that Possibly the rest of the movie doesn't capture, even if it's got Kerouac being read over it, over certain scenes.
1: Yeah, and I do want to talk about the very final scene. Actually, there's not much to say about it. But in response to the speed in the movie, you're absolutely right. I think that's a good translation of page to screen in like mm-hmm. emphasizing just the sheer speed of the cars and everything in the book it's not just speed with the cars he wrote the whole thing yeah on speed but one of the things that i was still ambivalent about is Sam Riley's depiction of Sal Paradise i hated his depiction of Sal Paradise on my first view on my second view, sometimes I hate him, and sometimes I think it's great, and I cannot find a pattern. To when it was like at first I was like, oh, I think I like when he does his voiceovers, but not when he's actually like on screen. But then there were times when he was on screen that I really liked him. And there were times when I heard voiceovers. I was like, I hated that. I could not figure out when I liked Sam Riley as Mm -hmm. Sal or not. I don't know if it was just my reception or if that is indicative of that. It's just like an inconsistent depiction of Sal.
0: Yeah, I think that, and this isn't entirely original to me, I read it somewhere. I think that the movie positions Sal much more as an observer figure Mm -hmm. than the book does. Mm -hmm. Sal's much closer to the sort of figure you see in The Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway, where, where he's there and he's observing, but he's not, even though he does get involved, he's not quote, getting involved, close quote. He fills the position for viewers of not a character, but as a viewpoint character. Because of that, I mean, viewpoint characters have a certain number of demands on them. One of the demands is that they be relatively tranquil or placid. In film, if you've got that sort of a viewpoint character, very often you don't have room for any sort of complexity or hang up or neuroses. And so, whereas the book on the road is a testament of, Kerouac by way of Sal Paradise and his own experiences and his own development. Mm-hmm. The movie on the road is a kind of Bildungsroman Roman in that Sal changes from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, but he's also a fairly flat character, right? One of the reasons the romance with Mary Lou doesn't work is there's just not a lot to Sal in the movie. He's just, mm-hmm there sitting and being around many more interesting people than him i would honestly rather watch a movie about carlo marx and dean hanging out than watch on the road again
1: you know what's interesting is i tell my students often like especially like in my intro to lit classes like Mm -hmm. When we're talking about flat versus round characters Mm -hmm. and static versus dynamic characters, yes, there's a lot of overlap, but a flat character is not necessarily a static character Mm -hmm. and a round character is not necessarily a dynamic character. This is a hard characterization to find. And I tell my students, this doesn't come up often. In this movie, not in the book, but in the movie, Sal Paradise, he is flat but dynamic. Like he changes Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the movie to the end. But like his emotional range throughout the movie is the fucking same. And I made a note of this. I think the biggest change that it moves from, and this is maybe more representative of Kerouac at large, but certainly in On the Road, but that it, I think it moves from into it to indifference, to ambivalence, to cynicism, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we do see that progression of Sal Paradise in the movie in terms of how he kind of Reacts to and thinks about Dean, but I don't mm-hmm. think we see the emotional range that we see in the book. Or maybe I find more emotional range in the book than's actually there.
0: We can talk about the ending scene here, I think, because that's where a lot of this crystallizes. In the book, the last encounter with Dean is shot through with ambivalence. Right. Right. So Sal wants to spend time with him, but he also wants to go see Duke Ellington. And it is his friend that refuses to let Dean come along like and be dropped off somewhere. You have here in the book a change in terms of how Sal views Dean and how he relates to Dean, but it is not an unambiguous rejection of Dean.
1: In the movie, it has more of a... um... Feeling of I'll see you next time type of thing. And when well, Kerouac I mean, gets in the car. And of course, like the, then we finally see Dean and we see him like as just he's shivering in the rain and yeah. and stuff like that. But when the, the two of them actually park, it seems like Sal more has an attitude of not now, but I'll see you later. I saw that in, directly the opposite way i saw really? that
0: last scene i saw that last scene as a absolute unambiguous rejection of dean
1: oh interesting um, okay
0: where because he's the one that says no i can't i can't drive anywhere it like look i'll see you next time is exactly the sort of thing you say to someone that just showed up that you don't want to see again but you don't want to just rudely tell them to go away right
1: and so but it's also it is verbally whether intentionally it is or whether it's intentionally the opposite verbally Mm -hmm. it is leaving the door open yes and in terms of kerouac and cassidy Mm -hmm. of course this isn't the last time they meet right and maybe that's why i viewed it that way but i really saw it as like don't get me wrong it was a way of uh i don't like you right now mm. but I didn't see it as a fuck you I never want to see you again
0: I don't want to be too insistent on this point because obviously you know more about Kerouac than I do what informed my reading of this last scene was the visual signifiers attached to both characters mm-hmm. so at the end of the movie we see Sal very dressed up hair slicked back so right? weird he's, he's so just weird, totally He's totally in like square mode at this point. Dean, meanwhile, is the most disreputable we've seen him in the whole movie, which is saying something because we've seen him naked. He's also at the lowest point we've seen him in terms of his Mm -hmm. affect, in terms of his emotion. He's Mm -hmm. totally broken. He's totally out of control. The way that the scene plays out to me is you have Sal who has rejected Dean after having been betrayed by him in Mexico. He's now respectable Mm -hmm. and he is rejecting the lifestyle that he's been enjoying for the whole movie. Now, whether this is a positive ending or a negative ending depends on your view of Dean's lifestyle, (laughs) but it does seem to be making, to me, a clear and definitive break within the movie by totally degrading Dean. In a way that it doesn't even necessarily happen in the book. I've said several times, Dean is like he loses his words over the course of the book. He he mm-hmm. loses control. He's evacuated, whatever. But at the end of the book, he is still not a thoroughly abject figure, I think. But in the movie, I think he is. In the movie, I think he's totally destroyed. What we see is the final rejection of all of that in that scene.
1: What year is it? 1950 or 51. I mean, the story is from what 47 to 49, right? And this is never explicit in the book again. I think this would probably be like more like pulled from the uh, other things. But The Town and the City is published in 1950. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's kind of meant to be a reflection of this idea that Kerouac. Like made it because he published a book, even though this book did not do all that well, but the way that he's all dressed up and slicked up. I don't know if this is true or not. I, I hadn't thought about this until you just brought up that sort of sartorial difference between them at the end. But I wonder if it's supposed to be reflective of that.
0: I think it very well might be. Again, Sal in the movie has become square, even though he's going to listen to Duke Ellington. He, He has become square. He's become part of society. He's become, you know, accepted and respected. And he cannot countenance being with Dean anymore. And I'm not sure that we, the audience, are supposed to totally buy that. Because, again, the movie gives a lot more attention to Dean's psyche and his psychological traumas than the book does you have the scene where he talks about trying to commit suicide and it's filmed in a way that's very like the director is coming out and saying you see this guy that you think is so crazy he's actually deeply wounded and he's acting out based on that wounded nature
1: i had a hard time
0: watching Uh, that yeah yeah it's it's a difficult scene Headland performs it very well, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think the movie actually wants us to sympathize with Dean a lot more. And I think that we're not necessarily supposed to go along with Sal's absolute rejection of Dean. And indeed, Sal doesn't absolutely reject him because the last words of the movie are actually the last words of the book.
1: Did you notice that in the last words of the movie, he says, Dean Moriarty, Dean Moriarty, T, yeah which in the book dean moriarty isn't repeated it's repeated when kerouac is on the steve allen show and he's reading it in his beat beat bop thing and i think of dean moriarty yeah i noticed that in the very end of the book in the last paragraph it, it skips some things of the uh original novel and one of them is Pooh bear in fact mm-hmm. and it, it it actually i think it follows if i remember right it follows more closely to the scroll i still liked it ending with that if, if it ended with anything besides the last paragraph of the novel i would have been upset all right well let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and do our recommendations and mm-hmm. sign off Before we go, as we always do, we will either mention a recommendation or something we've been watching or reading to recommend to our audience. So what do you have to rec?
0: It's the end of the semester here for me. So I've been doing a lot of grading and writing and wrapping up of things. I do have one recommendation that I think might be sideways appropriate to this book. I recently decided that I wanted to read more Thomas Pynchon. I've read The Crying of Lot 49 several several times. I think it's great. It's one of my favorite novels, but I've never read any other Pynchon. So, a few weeks ago, I picked up Inherent Vice and I read a little bit of it every day. Just worked my way very slowly through it. And it's great. It's a lot more accessible than some of Pynchon's other stuff, like uh Gravity's Rainbow, for instance. It is very confusing in terms of the plot. That makes sense because it's like a noir. It's really just a hangout novel, though. You just read it to spend time with these kooky characters in a drug-infused California of the mid-century.
1: My understanding of the novel, and I admit I don't know Pynchon at all, Mm -hmm. I haven't even read The Crying of Lot 49, but don't shame me. That's something I already shame myself for. But it's a much more accessible novel of Pynchon's kind of. It's much more accessible. Some Pynchon snobs
0: call it Pynchon Light. I don't know about that because I've not read enough of his stuff to be able to tell. It is very accessible. It reads really well. And there's a movie based on it with Joaquin Phoenix, which is also mm. really good. So let's think of that as a sub recommendation. Uh, the who reason else? I think, it,
1: who, who else was in that movie?
0: Uh, Josh Brolin. That's right. Okay. The reason I think that this might pair well with On the Road is that both of these novels have a sort of relationship with the mid century and with the ways in which. As the century goes on, the sort of idealism that followed immediately after World War II kind of curdles and turns negative and dark and scary. So, On the Road, obviously, obviously is published well before the Manson killings. Inherent Vice is set after the Manson killings. So, if you want to trace a sort of lineage from the Beats up through the Beatniks, the Hippies, to the Mansons, and then to the Reagan-era reading these two novels in sort of communication with each other would
1: probably do some interesting work. Inherent Vice by Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon, Pynchon. yeah. Okay. My Rex. Well, first of all, one of the best movies I have seen in years. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, yeah. Which... I I know you're familiar with. You haven't seen it yet, have you? I've not seen it yet. I'm trying to find the time to watch it. It's fantastic. I don't have a ton to say. It's hard to describe or define. But it was something I saw and enjoyed so incredibly. Saw it with Elizabeth in the theater. Both of us, like, cried the entire second half of the movie. That's not surprising for me. (laughs) I cry all the time. Elizabeth does not cry. The fact that she was crying throughout this movie says a lot. And it's like Kung Fu, action-packed, multiverse, all about family. So wholesome. It's just amazing. Um, As far as a book I would recommend, I recently read Devil's House by John Darnielle. Listeners might know him as the frontman and and writer of the mountain goats he this is his third novel it's very interesting when I finished it I had to like just sit on it and think about it for like several days before I had a conclusion because I'm not gonna say a lot here because so much it, it is it's kind of written as a true crime mystery well one of the narrators in it is a true crime writer. And so it does stuff with true crime and myth making and pop culture. And I mean, obviously touching on like the sort of pop cultural sensation of true crime and the fictionalization that goes along with that sort of stuff. It's really weird. There's this one chapter in it that it's all in like these early modern English like typography Mm -hmm. and it's all about some myth of some night that just appears in the middle of it for no reason and ends before the thing is over it ends mid-sentence and it's just like there this book is it's weird and i was unsure of it at the end but at this point after reflecting on like i definitely recommend it devil's house by john darnell it's it's a weird but cool books. So, okay, cool, cool. Well, next time
0: we're going to be reading Reflections in a Golden Eye, which is a really fun book. I read it for my comps back in grad school, and I literally read it in an afternoon. It's a very quick read. It's steamy and strange and marvelous. So, and
1: that's by Carson McCullers. Carson McCullers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we're going to have Who's, a McCullers
0: scholar on to, to
1: talk with us about it. That's right. We're going to so. have another guest on the episode to help Nathaniel and I make sense of this book. So yep. Reflections yep. in a Golden Eye will be next and we look forward to it and hope you all will join us. again for joining us at the projectionist lending library uh, if you'd like to contact us you can find us on twitter at pllibpodcast. podcast you can find us on instagram at pll podcast you can find our facebook page at the projectionist lending library and finally you can email us at projectionistslendinglibrary@gmail.com. at gmail.com Feel free to reach out if you have any feedback, if there's any particular book or adaptation you'd love to have us cover or anything at all. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope to catch you next time.